0: Uh, we're reading from Zechariah 2, 1 through 13. And I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, a man with a measuring line in his hand. And then I said, Where are you going? And he said to me, To measure Jerusalem, to see what it is with and what is its length. And behold, the angel who talked with me came forward, and another angel came forward to meet him, and said to him, Run, say to that young man, Jerusalem shall be inhibited, as villages without walls, because of the multitude of people and livestock in it. And I will be to her a wall of fire all around, declares the Lord, and I will be the glory in her midst. Up, up, flee from the land of the north, declares the Lord, for I have spread you abroad as four winds of the heavens, declares the Lord. Up, escape to Zion, you who dwell with the daughter of Babylon, For thus said the Lord of hosts, After his glory sent me to the nations who plundered you, for shall become plunder for those who served them. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me. Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for behold, I come and I will dwell in your midst, declares the Lord. And many nations shall join themselves to the Lord in that day and shall be in my people, and I will dwell in your midst, and you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. And the Lord will inherit Judah as his portion in the holy land and will again choose Jerusalem. Be silent, all flesh, before the Lord, for he has roused himself from his holy dwelling. This is the word of the Lord. Be to God.
1: Well, thank you, Jackie. If I haven't had the chance to meet you yet, my name's Ben. I am the associate pastor here, and I am thrilled that y'all came out to join us as we look at Zechariah. But I know that Zechariah, reading a vision of a man who lived um, in the 6th century B.C., may not be the easiest pool to wade into. So let's start with something a little easier. Last night, I was uh, watching the Lego movie with my kids. Have you all seen this? It came out a a number of years ago. There's already been like two or three of them. I don't know. Uh, But it's a movie uh, that is based as if the Lego characters are real. And so it looks almost like a stop motion little picture of little Lego guys that live in the Lego lands. And the first movie centers around this Lego man named Emmett. And Emmett lives in a town called Bricksburg, and he has a job as a construction worker, and everything is awesome in his life. He receives a a book from his, uh, from President, what is his name? President Business, who tells him exactly what it is that he is supposed to do in his life. It's a book that is how to fit in how to have everybody like you and how to be happy. And it tells him step by step, 11 steps, what he needs to do to fit in and have everybody like you and to be happy. Step number one, breathe. Step number two, do exercises. Step number four is wear clothes, which is a good idea. Step number nine is root for the local sports team. Step 10 is buy overpriced coffee. Step 11 is listen to popular music. And everything as we see in the opening scenes of Emmett's life seems good. It sounds good. It it seems like he feels good. And even as he sings the, the, the theme song, everything is awesome. We quickly realize that everything is not actually awesome. In fact, everything uh, underneath the surface that's happening in Bricksburg is going very, very bad because president's business is actually the evil lord business. Just play along with the silliness of this, okay? An evil lord business has in his mind that in three days he is going to destroy everything that Emmett knows, everything that Emmett loves. And in fact, those instructions, those rules, those instructions that were given to him to tell him how to be awesome and how to be happy are really just a means for him to to distract him from reality, to distract him of what is really going on in the world. And so as Emmett discovers this evil plan that Lord business is hatching, he has a choice. He has a choice of whether he is going to continue in this world of, of of following the instructions where everything sounds good, everything feels good, but actually it's leading to nothing. Or he has to choose, he has to en- choose to engage with reality, to engage with the world as it really is. I think Zechariah, as we turn to him, is inviting us to answer the same question. Are we going to keep going through uh, life, living according to the instruction manuals, the step-by-step manuals that are implicitly given to us in our world? Are we going to try to understand what it means to be happy and fulfilled and have our lives mean something based on the instructions of the world around us or upon the reality of what God has given his people? So what I want us to do this morning is I want us to take a look at these instructions, right? The, you picture the little Lego booklet, right? You know what I'm talking about, it's step-by-step pictures of, of how it is. And uh, we don't have the 11 rules that Emmett had, uh, but we could take a look and, and we could make a long list of, of other sorts of rules, other sorts of instructions for how to build a meaningful life. And so this morning, I want us to take a look at 11 rules. Just kidding, not 11. Uh, we're just going to do two. I talk way too long for us to do more than two. But here's what they are. Here's the, here's the two I want us to look at today and compare them with uh, the vision that Zechariah has. The first instruction that I think we absorb really early on in our life is that to have a meaningful life in this world, you have to build something amazing, build something awesome build something great with your life it's you know we're, we're doing our celebration today it's graduation season i remember when i graduated high school one of my friend's mom gave me this dr seuss book you might be familiar with it it's called oh the places you'll go did you all ever see this read this um it's a book by Dr. Seuss, but it's, built, it's written to be given kind of as a graduation gift. And it imagines uh, the, this fictional person's life, all the great things that they'll do, all the, the hardships that they'll suffer. But I remember being an 18-year-old reading this book, and it starts off with, you're on your own, and you know what you know, and you are the guy who will decide where to go. Because that rule, this instruction, build something with your life, do something that makes, uh, that, that, that is of consequence, make something of what you know in the world. And we hear that, and it's like mind-boggling, overwhelming. It's mind-boggling, overwhelming, because we want to go, wait, what is this something that I'm supposed to build? What is, what is, how do I go about building it? What is, how do we know if it's great or not? And yet we go about our lives trying to find something that we can be good at, some little avenue, some little little task, some little neighborhood where we can be excellent or where we can be special. But we, since we don't really know what it is that we're supposed to be doing, we just choose things at random and we try to compare ourselves against ourselves. We can't do something great We don't know what great is, so the only way we can do it is to compare our greatness to what has gone before. It becomes a life where we're just trying to measure ourselves, trying to measure ourselves to see if we measure up. And in that way, we're not so different from the man that we find in the vision of of Zechariah 2. We're introduced in the first verse to a man with a measuring line in his hand. And they say, where are you going? What are you doing? And he says, I'm going to measure Jerusalem to see what is its breadth, width and what is its length. And one of the, uh, the, the, the tasks that he's been given is, is pretty clear. You see, these are people, who, these were the Israelites who were yanked out of their homeland in Jerusalem. Yanked out of the life, the, the only life that they had ever known and taken away in bondage to, a, to Babylon taken away as exiles from their homeland. And yet here is this opportunity that has been afforded to them to begin to return, to begin to rebuild. And so this man is going about the work. He's going about the work that was given to him. And so he, in planning to rebuild the city, his job and the vision is to, to measure it to do the survey before the construction to begin, to figure out how big is this supposed to be, how grand, how significant would this new city be? Because he needed to know if what the task he was given would measure up with what had happened before. And this wasn't just a hypothetical. Actually, in the Bible, we're told uh, the same, you can read the book of Ezra, along with Zechariah, and, and see more of a historical account of what's happening. And what happened just a couple years before Zechariah wrote these words is that the people, the, the 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 refugees, had had reassembled back in their homeland, and they had begun to rebuild the most important building to them—that was the temple. The Israelites didn't have much going, much going for them. They were a small country. They were people who had been abused. There were people who had been conquered over and over again. But they were a people whose name, whose identity was based on the fact that the temple of the living God was in their land. And so item number one when they got back to Jerusalem was we need to rebuild the temple. And so they relayed the foundation. And Ezra 3 tells us that, that as they finished the foundation of that temple... That they celebrated and they brought out the trumpets and the priests put on all their swag and they marched around and they sang the songs and they celebrated. But not the old men. The old men and the old women who gathered at that place cried. They cried because when they looked at the temple, it was not something that they could celebrate. Because they could see how much smaller it was from the one they remembered. They'd waited for 70, they'd waited for years to be able to come back to their homeland, to rebuild their temple, and what they built was so much less significant than what had been taken away from them. They risked their lives building this temple, but when they look at the temple, when they measured its dimensions, it didn't add up. It didn't measure up, it was insignificant. The purpose that they had wrapped their, ri- their lives around wasn't enough. We all wanna do something great. We wanna build something great with our lives, but what if we can't measure up? What if we can't even measure up to our own level of success? I was reading Uh, I came across a blog post this week of of someone who was uh, very fond of measuring his life, very fond of of measuring uh, how well he was doing, of of seeing if he was accomplishing his purpose in life. And he actually printed out and he provided on the Internet his scorecard for, for life, his scorecard for personal and professional success, and on his scorecard, he measures uh, his 10 goals of things that he, he tracks on a daily basis to see if he is getting better, if he is going somewhere, if his life is going somewhere. And so he measures how many days of the week he, he, he has an hour of meditation. He measures uh, the quality of his sleep. He measures how many journal entries he gets, how, many, uh, how, how close he attends to his diet. He keeps track of of how many promises he's made to friends and and has been able to keep. He tracks how many hours of, of deep work he can calculate in a day. He has taken his life and he has said, I'm going to build something great of myself. And I am going to get out the measuring line and it will tell me whether I am enough, whether I am doing something, whether I'm building something with my life that is significant. Can you imagine doing that? Can you imagine the terror of seeing the numbers next to your life of trying to grade whether you have 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 a life of purpose if you have a life of meaning doesn't matter what it is that you care about and maybe it's your your ranking on a on a video game maybe it's the value of your portfolio maybe it's the zip code that you live in we live in a world that tries to tell itself, everything is awesome because I can measure it and I can see it. But what if those measurements are empty? What if even if you are able to succeed in, in measuring those things, we live in a world where it's, it's an illusion? right? If you listen to the stories of the world... Even our best efforts don't make any difference to the meaning of our life. And Thomas Nagel, who's a a secular philosopher, he wrote a book called What Does It All Mean? And as he looked at his life, and he's trying to answer this question, does what we do matter? Do our lives have meaning? He gives this uh, rather depressing excerpt. He says, even if you produce... Even if you succeed, even if you're able to produce, let's say, a great work of literature, which continues to be read thousands of years from now, eventually the solar system will cool, or the universe will wind down or collapse, and all trace of your efforts will vanish. Later on, he says, In fact, it wouldn't matter if you had never existed. And after you've gone out of existence, it wouldn't matter that you did not exist. You see the people looking... At our lives, people who are willing to think deeply about these things say that in a world without God, your life is just a a ruse. It's just things and objectives that you do to distract yourself from the purpose, the reality that you have no purpose. And so, the instruction manual that we get from our world—it sounds good, it feels good. It feels like I'm sleeping better, I'm achieving new things in my career. I have healthier relationships. But at the end of the day, they're trying to, you're trying to ignore the very fact that what you build means nothing at all. And in that way, we're maybe not so different from Emmett after all. The way we live our lives is just passing the time until oblivion sets in. And according to the instruction sheet of the world, it's just something that we must accept. But maybe we don't. Maybe we don't, because in Zechariah's vision, the man with the measuring line is not the end-all be-all. The man with the measuring line is not the one who assesses the value of someone's life and of the purpose of their work. We're told that as a man goes out to measure Jerusalem, that another angel comes forward to meet him. And he says, run, go quickly, go intercept that young man. Because he needs to understand something, that God is at work. He says, the Jerusalem that you can measure now is not the Jerusalem that will one day be. He says, Jerusalem shall be inhabited as villages without walls because of the multitude of people and the livestock in it. God says, and I will be to her a wall of fire all around, declares the Lord, and I will be the glory in her midst. God God gives these people, these people who have made a life in in Babylon, these people who have, have a place where they at least feel safe, a place where their parents have forged a life, a place where they have a home. And he is inviting them to enter into this wasteland that is called Jerusalem. And if you're measuring your life based upon the, the metrics, based upon the measuring life, what they're about to do is an incredibly stupid thing. Because they're going to trade security for a, a wasteland where an opposing tribe could swoop in at any moment. They're going to trade a, a, a place of belonging to be with a group of strangers In this city of Jerusalem, what they are doing makes no sense. Unless if what God is doing is he is building something even better. If you want your life to have meaning, you can't build your purpose based upon the arbitrary metrics and measuring tapes that you set up. You have to build your life based on what God is building in us. And so we live in this city and in a time. And every day when we wake up, we have the choice of what it is that we are going to pursue. Are we going to pursue those things that make us feel better about ourselves, but ultimately don't don't have any purpose beyond us? Or are we going to spend our time relocating our time, relocating our money? Maybe in some cases relocating the very home that we live in. In order to be near those things that God is building in the city of Memphis. To be near those who are in need materially or spiritually. To be near those who, who need to know that God has a plan and a purpose in our world. Our lives have purpose. We are not just gerbils on the wheel running around. But the question is, is do we recognize it? Where do we get our sense of purpose from? Is it from the instruction sheet of the world or is it because of the vision of what God is doing in it? But that's just one. I want us to do another one. Another instruction sheet as we turn the page on how to build a life that uh, makes you feel successful and happy, the uh, life where you have community and you have meaning. Page number one may be to go and make something of yourself, but the second one is 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 a little bit different. The second one is to say, believe in yourself. Believe in yourself. This one is actually taken directly from the Lego Movie. It says. Uh, if you want to have meaning in life, Emma, then you, what you really need is you need to believe in yourself. You must know yourself. You must love yourself. If, for a, if your life is going to have meaning, it doesn't just have to have a, a project or a purpose to work on, a goal that it's moving towards. It needs significance. Your life has to value for something that extends beyond itself. And so for, for for the writers of the Lego movie, the answer to this was, well, you just need to look inside. I'm going to switch to a different movie. A few years ago, maybe your house was like mine, and you got struck with greatest showman uh, zeal. The soundtrack blared in, in your home. You remember this movie? It's a movie about uh, P.T. Barnum as a fictional account of his uh, invention of the, the circus, right? And P.T. Barnum goes around and he finds all the misfits, all the people that society has cast aside, all the people who um, couldn't fit in and had no value. Some of their parents hid them in upper rooms so that no one could be seen. Some of them lived in shame on the street corners. And he gathered them around and he, and he gave them a home. But kind of at the, the crescendo of the movie, if you've seen this, you get to, to this song called This Is Me. And the bearded lady uh, marches through the streets with this ragtag group of, of misfits singing about how they have experienced significance in the world. Why it is that they know that they have meaning, even though the world shouted hateful things at them, even while they were rejected and, and, and uh, obscured, she sings, I won't let them break me down to dust. I know that there's a place for us, for we are glorious. And if you're like me, you watch that, and your, your heart starts beating, and you go, yes! Finally, this group of misfits has a home. Finally, this group of misfits feels like they are accepted. They feel like they are loved. They feel like what they are matters. Matters. It sounds so good. It feels so good, but just like the last instruction sheet, it leads to nowhere. It leads to nowhere because while she may say we are glorious, while she says we have meaning, what she's really saying is just, I think that we have meaning. I think that I'm of value. You see, we live in a world where we deeply need to know that we matter and that we love. And so the instruction manual of this world says, this is how you'll know that you matter. If you stop listening to outside voices and you put your meaning and your significance deep within your own heart, then those people, though they throw sticks and stones, they won't be able to take that away from you. You will know that you are significant because you say you're significant. You'll know you ha- your life has meaning because you believe that your life has meaning. The problem is, is that it doesn't work. I don't know anyone. I don't know anyone Uh, No matter what they say on their Instagram page, no matter what the slogan is on their t-shirt or no matter what yard sign they put up in the yard saying, uh, I am glorious, I am beautiful, I am perfect just the way I am, who looks at themselves in the mirror, who looks themselves in the eye and says, I am glorious when they wake up in the morning. If our meaning, if our significance is based upon our self-opinion of ourselves, then your meaning and your significance will evaporate before your eyes. Because what happens on the day that you don't feel glorious? What happens on the days when you uh, have done something really terrible to someone you love? What happens on the days when the voices around you are so, so loud The voices that say that you're meaningless, that say that you don't add up. The instruction sheet for the world says, take your meaning, take your significance, and put it in your own hands, and then no one will be able to take it away from you, except you can't even hold on to it yourself. Because significance has to come from the outside. Here again, Jesus comes, I mean, God speaks to his people in Zechariah because they're wrestling with the same reality. These are people who have been stripped of every identifying mark. These are people that have no social bearing in the land in which they live. This is a people who have just eked out in existence. And they have to be wondering who are they? Do their lives matter? It's pretty clear that the Babylonians don't think so, but would it be any different if they came and joined the people in Jerusalem? And God's invitation to them is pretty clear. It says, you matter. You have significance because you matter to me. Did you all hear as Jackie read? Verse 8, look at this. Jesus is, is I mean Jesus. God is, is saying through the prophet Zechariah, he says, For thus says the Lord of hosts, after his glory sent me to the nations who plundered you. For he who touches you touches the apple of his eye. God looks at this ragtag group of people. These people who have been abused. These people who have had hateful things shouted at them. These people who have been scorned. And the eyes of the world have looked upon them as meaningless. And God says, you are the apple of my eye. When I look at this crowded world of people, you are the one who my eye is drawn to. It is you who I love. It is you who I desire. In verses 5, 10, 11, God says, come back to Jerusalem. Come back and, and join the people of God because they, I have the promise that I will be in your midst. In a world where people are excluded and left off the text chain, where people don't get the invite to be with other people, God says, I will come and be within your midst. I want to do life with you. I want to move in and be near you because you matter. God does not tell them you need to understand your own significance. He doesn't tell them you need to feel beautiful in yourself. He says, I find you significant. I find you beautiful. Verse 12, God says, and I will again choose Jerusalem. He doesn't choose them because they are great. They are great because he chooses them. And so you and I sitting here in this room today, we can, uh, every day that we wake up, we're, we're offered two ways of understanding meaning in our lives. There's two ways of thinking that our lives have value. One is, is that we can declare to ourselves that we are glorious, that we are beautiful, that we matter. But the other way is to listen. To listen to the God of the universe as he declares to his people that they are his. That they matter, not because they're good or beautiful, not because they're, they got the right number of sleep days in, but because they belong to him. And at the final stage of this world, they will live with him in the midst of his glory and in the midst of his grace. We want to take our significance and hide it deep down inside our hearts because we think no one can take it away from us there. But what greater significance could there be than the God of heaven and earth who holds our significance for us? That's a significance that can be taken away. That's a significance that we were made to experience. Because what God was telling Zechariah was not just a pipe dream. It was not just a, 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 a beautiful rhetoric. God really did intend to dwell in their midst. And in a couple of years, a couple hundred years, he would descend into earth himself. And he would, would go through this life as a homeless man. He would go through this life as one who is scorned and hated. He would go through this life in a way that would lead him to be crucified and executed. Because this vision, this vision of dwelling with his people, because these people, these people who are the apple of his eye were so important to you. And so on a Monday morning, do you want to look in the mirror and tell yourself, I am glorious because I say so? Or do you want to look at yourself in the mirror and say, I matter to God so much that he was willing to pay that kind of price to be near me if you want to be happy if you want to be whole don't follow the instruction sheet of this world even though it looks good even though it may feel good for a minute it leads to emptiness and nothingness on the day when the hard days on the hard days when they kick in on the days when you're scorned and hated. Significance comes from the Lord, the one who has radically accepted his people. And so, Je- and so Zechariah's vision ends with this little phrase, be silent, all flesh, before the Lord, for he has roused himself from his holy dwelling. The choice in front of God's people, the invitation that God gives his people is, is do you want your meaning in life to be up to you? Because if you do, uh, that, that, that's all that there is to it. If it's up to you, then your life will be nothing more than what you can build for yourself. It will be nothing more than, than the lies that you tell yourself. But if your life is united with him, if your life is a part of the story that he is bringing in the world, a world where people from every people, tribe, tongue, and, and, and nation gather together in, the, in this glorious new Jerusalem. If your life is a part of what God is doing in the world, then it's not up to you. The invitation that God gives his people is, is that instead we have the option to be silent. Instead, we have the opportunity to wait because our life is not up to ourselves. Our meaning is not by our own definition, but in the love of our Lord and Savior. Pray with me. God, I pray that as we leave this room, as we're tempted to think about our lives as being one that we make for ourselves, one that is defined by our successes, one that we make by hiding from our failures. God, you invite people to experience your world in a very different way, one where we can hear that your attestations of love, one where you proclaim your goodness and your kindness to your people, one where we know ourselves because we have been found in you. Father, I pray that we would hear your invitation and be changed by. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.